and talking about cloud services and how they're useful to uh, developers, especially indies, because of the flexibility of what cloud services can do. And I'm not just talking about Azure, although I am Azure certified, um, but AWS and Google Cloud and all of those different clouds give you a lot of uh, a lot of flexibility to do things. So I think there's a, a basic misunderstanding among a lot of people about what the cloud really is and what it can do. And so okay. that's why we wanted to talk about pizza as a service. <clears throat> so for a lot of people these days, you may not realize this, but there was a time in the past where you could go to a restaurant that served pizzas. You could sit down at a table and somebody Seems would, foreign. <laughs> would, would serve you a pizza. Yeah. <laughs> these days with COVID, I mean, it was already, you know, everybody just kind of defaults, defaults to delivery these days. A lot of mm -hmm. the places like Godfather's Pizza and Pizza Hut. You know, Pizza Hut used to be a hut-shaped building that was a restaurant that you'd go have pizza at, right? Talk yeah, about it. I still take service. my girls to pizza once a week. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's still out there, <laughs> but it's so much more rare. And, yeah, some people may have just not even ever heard of that. <laughs> so we wanted to, wanted to make sure that we cleared the air here first because going <laughs> to a restaurant and buying pizza is the first, you know, is, is one of the is one of the pizza as a service metaphor things here. So what are we really talking about? Pizza as a service. So what we're actually talking about here is the concept of uh, the, the acronyms that we use are IaaS, PaaS, and SaaS. What this means is infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, and software as a service. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so these are three different kinds of, of scenarios that you can use uh, on the cloud, right? Yeah. So what we're talking about, we're going to use the metaphor of pizza as a service so to kind of help you understand how this works. It's what they call the shared service model, where some of the responsibility for maintaining the system is, is shared with the provider, the cloud provider, whether that's Google or Amazon or Microsoft or whomever and you're responsible for other parts of it. And that's kind of the entire advantage of the cloud is that it helps you share those responsibilities. So you as an independent developer may not be real good at infrastructure, right? And so you might want to use software as a service. So let's get into the into the concept of, 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 uh, of <laughs> get into the concept of pizza as a service here. So, at the at the at, at each end of the spectrum you've got the idea of you're going to eat pizza right <laughs> but the amount of work that you put into eating the pizza is is going to be different based on the different characters. so you might be at home and you've got your own oven you've got your own ingredients and you've got your own pizza dough and you make the dough and you put the toppings on it and you use your own oven and then you make a pizza and you have a pizza at the end of it. You're doing almost all of the work. This is analogous to using the cloud in the most common scenario, which is infrastructure as a service. That is, you run your server where you install your own operating system and you patch the server and you install your software on it. You do everything that you need to do on that server by yourself. You do all of the work. The next level up from that is what we would call platform as a service. And using the pizza metaphor here, this is like going to the store and buying a frozen pizza. You, you go to the store and you get a pizza that's already prepared so you don't have to mix up the ingredients and do any of that kind of stuff, but you're still gonna go home and you're gonna put it in your own oven, right? And then you're gonna cook it and you enjoy your pizza after that. 
right? So this is your platform as a service metaphor where you're still responsible for the platform, but you might not necessarily be responsible for the operating system underneath it. Uh, the best example that I can use is with Microsoft SQL Server. Um, they have what's called Azure SQL, which basically doesn't give you access to much of the system data warehouse data or anything on the back end, but you can still connect to the SQL Server and you can manipulate the databases, create databases, delete databases, do all of that kind of stuff. So it's similar to that you get most of this, you know, the the, the nuts and bolts taken care of. Like they, they already put the ingredients together for you. They've built that server and they're giving you that platform piece already. So you just go and cook the pizza, right? The next level up from that is software as a service, which is like going to a pizza restaurant. You go to the pizza restaurant, you don't do any of the work, you just ask for the pizza that you want, you sit down and you enjoy your pizza. Software as a service is like that. And we have all been using software as a service for decades. The first most popular one was Hotmail. And then there was Gmail. Everybody uses Gmail. Gmail is software as a service. You don't have to deal with the servers that it runs on. You don't have to deal with the platform or maintaining the databases or the connections or the configurations or anything like that. You just use the service. And cloud services are just like that. Platform as a service, infrastructure as a service, software as a service, you can choose the level of responsibility that you have. You have you have the ability to share that responsibility with the cloud service provider. So does that make sense? This kind of an introductory, like big picture, what is the cloud? I, I see you guys nodding. <laughs> Sorry, I had mute on. But yes, that makes perfect sense. That sounds That's like a great intro. Right. Kevin should start recording that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I said that was a great job explaining it in the shortest amount of time because, like, I've I've been learning some of it recently. I was like, I get it, kind of, and then you just explained it, and I was like, oh, that wow, makes, right. Makes sense. So, so there's so many things that you can do with the cloud. The the least effective thing that you can do with the cloud is run your own servers on it. Right. I mean, that's yeah, like the most effective that. thing that you can do. It does give you the greatest amount of flexibility. You can install Linux or you can install Windows or you have, I think there's even virtual Mac OS. Right. And so you can set those things up on virtual machines in the cloud and use them. But that's just like <laughs> the only reason why you would ever do something like that in my mind is if you have some special piece of software that has has to run on your own custom platform, right? You know, most businesses don't do that kind of stuff these days. Um, you know, C++ as a language, for example, is is not something that you really find a whole lot of businesses other than companies like, you know, high-end companies like Microsoft that maintains the Windows kernel. And, you know, high-end developers do that kind of stuff on the operating system level, but business software rarely uses that kind of stuff these days. It's still used in games because it has that efficiency requirement, right? But most businesses, you know, the, those problems have been solved well enough for business that the thing that they care about is taking their data from one system, transforming it somehow, and putting it into another system. And those kinds of transactions and interactions on the cloud are super, super simple. Every single one of these cloud service providers has an extensive API to help you program the cloud 
so that you can just do those things. You just buy the cloud service that is a data transformation pipeline service, and you connect it to one thing, you define what your interface looks like, you tell it how to transform things, you connect it to the other thing, and then you let it go. We call these integrations. And that's like 90% of the work that you do when dealing with business software these days is integrating one system with another so that you can exchange some information in a meaningful way between those two systems. And those problems are super, super easy and have been solved for decades. And so that's why, you know, businesses are really hype on the cloud is because they can just, oh, you mean I can just have like my, my business expert that's kind of technical just go to the cloud and configure this stuff with point and click? I was like, yeah. It's, it's incredible, right? And it saves so much time and money. It's not something that's, you know, huge for, for gamers, but even, even the independent developer can still find ways to use those kinds of things where you can connect to a cloud service that allows you to manage user accounts, right? Like the Xbox gaming services or something, or the Epic stuff. So, I mean, it's it's such a great thing to be able to look into and say, hey, you know, maybe all you need is a database, right, to store some user information in or something like that. Maybe you've got, like, top scores for, you know, people that play your game around the world. Mm. You can do that kind of stuff using .NET with the Unity engine, like you guys were talking about earlier um, when I joined the call. You can make a call through .NET to connect through the Azure SDK to a database, or you know, Google, you know, the Azure, the Amazon Web Services has the exact same kind of stuff, right? And they all use standard protocols. They all use JSON, or you know, even you know, still to some extent XML these days, although it's becoming much less popular. Um, you know, these and and they all use the same kinds of data services, right? They all use the same protocols. All of this stuff works over hypertext. You know, it's just, it's so standardized. It's 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 very simple. No, yeah, that's definitely. Now, uh, so I want to ask you something. What do you, what is the cloud to you? <laughs> what is it to me? Um, that's a good question. I, re I kind of realized I got into doing cloud storage much later than everybody else. But it's, for me, it's literally just storing my files and somewhere in the, some, in the Google somewhere, Drive or OneDrive or yeah, something Google, like that, right? Google Drive, um, Dropbox. Yep, Dropbox right. as well. But I feel like Google Drive is, is better for me. Um, but yeah, that kind of thing. Nothing, nothing crazy. Also, cloud saves. Yeah. I do that sometimes. Yeah, that kind of thing. Probably in the best way possible, could you explain the cloud for anybody who's listening to this and doesn't have no idea what we're talking about? Essentially, you're just paying to use other people's computers that they maintain so that you don't have hey. to. Everybody's been using cloud services for a very, very long time. Most people don't didn't think about them that way, but Hotmail is the first, you know, big example of, of a cloud service provider. It was, you know, it was email on the internet, which was exceptional for its time <laughs> you know gmail became really the standard afterwards because of the you know the difference in the style of communication and it being much more accessible than being part of google as well just you know the the general influence of google in technology um but yeah i mean we've been using cloud services for a very long time when you use anything like you use anything like trello or or microsoft devops uh Anything that's, you know, an online application is technically software as a service from a cloud service provider. 
most of them, of course, run those services on other cloud service providers, right? Almost any email you've been using for a long time, right? Even if you got it from your local ISP, there's a cloud service, essentially. Okay, so now, when it comes to game development, what what are some platforms that they could use to use the cloud in their game development? Well, the only one that I'm really familiar with is is you know because Microsoft announced it a lot <laughs> recently was all of their services. They have this whole entire platform thing. I, I'm of course the name of it is slipping me at the moment, but it's uh, is it XCloud. Uh, no, it's like GameFab or something like that. I, I PlayFab. I can't remember exactly what it's called. Um, but they've got a lot of... There is Microsoft Azure PlayFab. It's essentially, it's all of the Xbox game services. You know, it's... it's They're even making, like, a, a new version of it for... Uh, for a new version of the Xbox Companion that has, like, that whole entire Xbox store for PC. So I think they were, like, trying to prototype that with, uh, you know, with, like, the, the Microsoft Play Simulator, right? That was supposed to be one of their first games that was going to be like you'd use you could buy the the um, the like the the game pass version, but that's all you know they've got all of their services set up like that and letting you know from their perspective their 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 service their xbox game platform uh, includes windows pcs and the windows and the microsoft store and includes azure and includes um they bought havoc i think for their physics engine and uh, includes uh, the DirectX stuff obviously that you know is all microsoft's graphics and stuff and it's yeah it's that uh, i i understand oh wait what's the what's the one from amazon lumberyard's a game engine though right yeah but it's also integrated with all of their web services right for for like you know being able to make multiplayer games so lumberyard's supposed to be like scriptable multiplayer i think their back ends based based on python that's uh you know their scripting language is python or something like that there's uh yeah yeah, well, well, there's, there's obviously like Unity has a lot of services. Yeah, well, I mean, Unity can use anything that's .NET, technically, right? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, they have their own services that they offer in house. Yeah, what was it? It used to be like GameSpy or something like that, right? Right. The old original GameSpy services, <laughs> way back in the day. <laughs> definitely looked, uh, definitely looked solid. I, I it was a, uh, it was definitely, uh, you know, built for. Being able to build like you know at scale like sandbox worlds and stuff like that, yeah, a good platform if you're like you know if you're trying to design something like GTA or or uh, Fallout or you know anything like that you know for for doing some multiplayer type stuff. I think it's about security and like game development. Recent companies have been getting like their stuff stolen. I think like even Valve experienced a source code leak way back in the day. If anybody remembers that. <laughs> Wouldn't surprise me though. I mean, you know, there's always insiders and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I think. Yeah, I don't know what was that one. I barely even remember it. I, somebody reminded me a couple of years ago. They were like, "Yeah, I remember Valve got hacked," and I was like, "Oh no, I didn't actually remember." Security is really important. That's actually probably one of the most advantageous things about the cloud, especially for independent developers. Is that you know what I what I was describing early on was what I called the the shared the shared 
responsibility model, right? That's that's the way that Microsoft talks about it. Of course, like I had mentioned earlier, I'm Azure certified, so I'm going to always default to what I know the most about. <laughs> I've been doing Azure for like 20 years, so... Um, their their concept of shared responsibility is really the easiest way to understand it, though, is that if you're an independent developer, you don't necessarily know how to install and maintain an operating system. You're you're a developer, right? <laughs> I mean, I work with developers constantly, and, and they're great at what they do, but, you know, fixing fixing issues on their on their PC is not something that they want to do. They want to write code and, and solve those interesting problems, right? So that's where that shared responsibility, you know, that shared responsibility model comes into play as being something so useful because you as the independent developer don't need to know about how to install and maintain an operating system. You can just pay for somebody to do that for you, more or less. You share that responsibility with the cloud service provider. They give you a platform that you can program and put your code online and store your data in a storage location and blah, blah, blah. And then you let them deal with the security of that, right? I mean, you have some responsibility. You need to make sure that your users are correct and all of that, that you protect your passwords, but you don't have to worry. You need to make sure that, yeah, you 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 programmed your stuff to, <laughs> to work the way that it's supposed to. But all of that kind of stuff is well explained and, and provided through software development kits and sample code and all of that kind of stuff from all of these platform providers, especially Amazon. They've got libraries of this kind of stuff because they've been yeah pretty much everything azure is available on github <laughs> it's actually kind of shocking if you go to microsoft's github repository how much stuff is on there stuff that you wouldn't expect <laughs> yeah they put a lot out there nowadays how long did it take to get like azure set uh certified um the basic certification that i took which was just azure fundamentals of the az 900 i think is what was the cert number um, I studied for about three weeks. I, I can say that I also learned quite a bit from doing that certification. I, you know, I, even though I have been using Azure since, I think it's closer to like 15 years or so. And they, they're on what's known as the 3.0 portal right now. So it was the release of what is now called the classic portal, which was in the past, the new portal, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of, when they made their first big marketing push about the new portal, I went ahead and checked it out. And that was, yeah, I think about 15 years ago. That was when I realized that the jobs that I had had in the past were going to be gone real soon. Um, because I basically went and logged into Azure, created a free Azure account, and, and uh, selected that I wanted to deploy a virtual machine. And selected some you know oh neat you can select however many cores you want and you can select your memory amount and oh this is all really awesome and i was like okay so kick that off and that'll probably be done in about an hour because i've been doing this for 15 years and it takes an hour to deploy and 10 minutes later the machine was ready to go after i picked my job off the floor <laughs> i then got really curious about how they did that <laughs> But yeah, the other part of it was that I just realized, oh, hey, you know, this is the future. Nobody's nobody's going to be building virtual machines or, you know, machines in their data center in 15 years. And look where we are now. <laughs> there are we still, still have a data center. Uh, yeah, there you are think? still people that have data centers, but it's becoming less and less common. I figured probably back then it is. in about 20 years. 
Yeah, and and that's that'll probably land maybe thirty years, and you'll see the very last of the legacy data centers gone. <laughs> We'll you see. Yeah, like another 15 years from now. Yeah. Is it valuable for game developer to get certified in that, or at least like learn it? Oh, it's definitely valuable if you're looking for corporate work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's definitely a lot of things that are useful there. If you were a developer, though, there are more developer-oriented Azure certifications that are way more useful. And I think the same thing's true for Amazon. I just I don't I'm not familiar with their certification processes or programs. Was the fundamental test that you took more? conceptual or technical it was a lot of kind of very high level what is azure and what kinds of services are on azure what can you do with azure what does your business get out of using azure i mean that was a lot of kind of like you know you know an example is that there was a whole entire section about the various advisory services that are available so there's yeah. like tools for monitoring costs, tools for estimating costs, tools for estimating total cost of ownership for on-premise, tools for evaluating security, tools for applying policies, and, and on and on and on and on. And I was just giving you kind of an interview of what a business would be interested in knowing about yeah. Azure is is largely what it is. Yeah. Thanks. Oh, it's definitely good. I mean, it definitely allowed me allowed me to be able to talk more intelligently about what you can actually do with it. We we had a customer that basically had no cloud services of any kind whatsoever and no experience with how to use them at all. You know, they were still living in the 1990s model of, you know, this is this is our data center and this is the perimeter ring of our network and <laughs> you know, there's where we that's where we stake the gates like <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's where we plant our flag. And uh, they then, you know, wanted to upgrade their their business software system. And they just had no idea how to deal with anything going on there. And at the time, I wasn't certified. And even having used Azure as long as I had, I still didn't know the things that I needed to know to be able to answer that question. So that was why, you know, when that cert push was out, I was just like, oh, hell yeah, get me in there. I need to learn. Yeah. And it changes all the time, too. I think that's Constant. kind of the biggest pain. With, yeah. Well, I don't know about AWS, but I'm sure it's the same thing, but definitely with Azure. Uh, no, I mean, the same thing is true on all of them. The, I'm sure. Yeah, they're they're constantly changing and evolving because there's new services and new ways to do things. I mean, you know, the biggest changes that have happened to both of them over the last maybe 10 years now is all of the AI and machine learning and, you know, everything that's related to cloud-based, you know, artificial intelligence type services. You know, those things didn't really exist on any of those until, you know, until the last 10 years or so. And, And that's, you know, a perfect example of why, you know, being adept at using the cloud is, is advantageous because if you know how to use these services and you know how to connect your you know your websites and your databases and all of these things up into you know into these different services and tie them together then you know when you a new service comes out like machine learning and you've already got a data lake for example well okay now all i have to do is just apply machine learning models to my existing data that's already in the cloud so you get to just take advantage of those things without really having a whole lot of you know, learning curve or you know pain to 
to to you, know, you don't have to deploy some new set of servers and software into your data center to be able to do that stuff. It's there, and you can integrate it with what's you know what you've already got. Yeah. So you know the next great thing that comes along, you know, I guess VR is another one of those that's been you know kind of kind of making a splash lately. You know, the next greatest you know great big thing that comes along if you're using cloud services, you'll be able to use that next thing already, ready to go. Exactly. It's probably going to help with um, cableless VR headsets. You don't even need to connect to anything. Just put it on. You get the whole world in your, uh, yeah, in your head. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Definitely. Isn't the, new, uh, isn't the new Oculus cableless? Yeah. It's the Quest. Amazing. Or whatever. It's, Do you have one? No, but the like the fact that it's actually there, it's real, it, it does everything a regular headset does. You just have to set it up one time, I think, on your phone or something, and you're good to go. You can play it anywhere. You can do anything. You can watch movies, play with games, sit in like a. Your phone. Well, for the setup, you have to set it up. You have to like configure the. Uh, because ah. I know, doesn't it have uh, PC optional? Yeah, set up the Oculus app and play a VR headset controller. Blah blah blah. Mhm. Yeah, I think they have like a, an adapter or something screwy. Well, I got <laughs> Anno because you were enjoying that, yeah. so I've been playing Anno. Oh, how have you been enjoying that? How far have you gotten? Um, Zoe, I'm curious. What are your thoughts on the future of audio for games? Because I know PS5 is trying to do some some high tech stuff with audio, like the Tempest 3D and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there'll be it will be in line with you know all of the other developments like VR and trying to develop better ways of delivering sound in like a 3D way that moves with the kind of immersion that they're trying to game with things like vr i mean it's just it all basically it'll get louder it'll get glossier it'll get it like like games are kind of doing you know mm-hmm. it'll very much be in line with the visuals i think but no, definitely yeah. make it more immersive i think what like, kinds of things do you think that the cloud might be able to offer to that kind of stuff like you know thinking like do you think they'll ever have anything like you know machine learning for audio or like i guess they've i've read about some some attempts to like do singing simulation digitally did you hear about that mm, yes i have heard of that yeah they've yeah. been doing making moves towards that for a while it's quite it's quite odd like trying to replicate the complete like vocal range of a human right yeah, the machine learning thing is interesting. They've kind they've kind of started doing things towards that with you know big get budget games like um, oh, which one Assassin's Creed Odyssey, mm. where the game sort of tracks your movements and the audio will sort of change and shift depending on where the player is and it will learn you know where you're going to move into or what area and it will change the audio slightly. But it's not exactly machine learning. It's just kind of like a randomness to how the sounds are generated. So I don't know. It's a good question. It's a good question. I guess we'll see. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it's just amazing. Well, so there was a news article that I read just this morning that was talking about Microsoft had released an anti-deepfakes software development kit. Okay. And it's essentially, you know, they basically released this as like, so this is what we can do right now because there's still ways that you could detect deepfakes that the human eye can't catch, but we can use machine learning to detect the signs of of deep faking right (laughs) 
And they and they also said at the time they're like and and this will very soon be defeated by better deep fakes that won't be detectable by anti deep faking technology, right? At which point we'll develop something else. You know, but I feel like that same kind of thing might also be possible because like when you're doing deep fakes, they're doing you know voice translation as well, right? Somebody may be sitting there saying one thing. And their voice is being modulated somehow to sound like this other person, right? Do you know anything about how that works? I, I, I kind of put you on the spot, I, assuming that you're nerdy about this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't actually know, but I just can't imagine anything that would be able to like modulate human voice like that convincingly, oh. that quickly. But maybe, maybe I don't know. I don't know. I had an app on my phone. And I used it to call a friend of mine using a different voice, and they didn't recognize me. How did it? So did you? So you spoke into it, and it just changed. Yeah. Oh yeah, It just yeah. changed my voice, but it, it, you know, it just like changed the pitch of my voice a little bit, and like the intonation and stuff. It was enough that it didn't sound like me. It had a bunch of different options, and most of them kind of sounded robotic. But yeah, I tried it with one of them, and and it worked. I, it was kind of elaborate to get it set up because I had to like, I had to call from Skype, <laughs> or I had to use the microphone. How did I do that? It ended up being that I had like I had to be in the other room so that I wouldn't hear my own echo as I was talking. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, because it was an app on my phone, so I had to talk into my phone, and then that had to come out somewhere else to go into another mic to go through the other phone. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> it was yeah. it was pretty interesting. But yeah, it was just like modulating my voice. So I assume that they they could probably like you know this is how you make your voice sound like Richard Nixon or you know or Bill Clinton or whatever, right? Yeah, I guess it's just like modulating it convincingly enough that it would actually like say if you wanted to be someone like Richard Nixon, like capturing all of the sort of tones and essences of his right. voice enough to actually replicate it. It'd be yeah. Not something I know all that much about, I have to say. Yeah, I mean, you'd also have to be good enough to, like, speak like him, right? <laughs> yeah, because a lot of it is, like, the way someone speaks rather than, right. like, the actual sound of how they speak, you know? Why? Like, I can sound like I'm from England. No, I can't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you annoy me. <laughs> like I said, no, I can't. <laughs> Giving yourself the accent, though, might be a little bit easier than, say, making you talk like Morgan Friedman. Right, right. You know? Yeah, because if you have, if you're given like a different accent, it doesn't. You can still talk in the same way with the same sort of speed and right. inflection. But <laughs> kinda, but not. <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily sound like Morgan Freeman. <laughs> There's a yeah. uh, there's a segment on Agents of Shield that I absolutely <laughs> loved. Ian DeCaresteaker, I think, or Caseaker. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. And the guy that plays uh, Fitz in there, he plays the part with a Scottish accent. I think he's actually English or possibly Scottish natively. Mm -hmm. um, or no, 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 he's an American, but he plays a Scottish accent for that. That's right. And yeah. then there's this segment of it where. He's uh, he's talking to somebody else in in the show, and he's like, "So how's your Scottish accent?" And she like pulls off this atrocious Scottish. Oh, I don't know how it is, mate, or something like that. And he's like, "All right, American, we'll do that. That's much better." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The American accent so perfectly. That was so funny. Oh man. American, then we'll do American. That's easier. 
the other the other thing that um, would be really cool being integrated into get like VR is binaural sound recording, which I don't know if you've like ever had any experience with it, but it's oh, yeah. basically um, a way of recording that sort of spatializes sound. So it's mm. you can use it in VR to sort of spatialize to so say if you've got someone running towards you you will you will hear it as if they are running towards you in the space you're in it's really weird if you've ever listened to like a binaural recording it's really really strange the classic one is like the sounds of having your hair cut and it sounds like the scissors are going behind your head it's really bizarre but i feel like that might be integrated more once those kind of microphones get better into into games but who knows who knows sky's kind of the limit but I definitely think be moving in a sort of VR spatial direction, sound-wise. Well, it's kind of like the old just surround sound effect, right? Yeah, kind but of. obviously on steroids and just better. Yeah, I mean, there's something. Like, yeah, there's something different about how they do it. But how is the oh, sure. how is the technology like? What's the cost for the technology for for doing that kind of recording right now? Like, I well, feel like that's probably going to be your limiting factor, right? I mean, it's you can. It's interesting because you can buy binaural microphones actually quite cheaply. But if oh. you're if you're like working on a triple A title, then you can. It goes up and down like any kind of bit of kit. But you know, I've used them. Um, oh, okay. Like you so can this is like buy them. Like it's like so. something that you might find in a typical or maybe a unique recording studio these days, but still fairly common. Kind of depends. It depends if you were in like. Um, like a, I don't know if you find them in a typical film studio. They're kind of like a specialist recording item, yeah. and they also require you to have either a person. So the way that they work is they kind of look like um, earbuds, and you put them in the, in your ears, or you put them on like a dummy head. And the way that it works, that uses the sort of um, space of the human head and the reverberation right. of the human head to create this illusion of space. Um, so you either need like a subject actually sitting there and with these things in their ears, or you need like a, a head, a human, uh, not a real human head, obviously. Well, you, you could have a real human head. <laughs> uh, just go down to the body parts. Yeah, store. just go down to the um, the mall. Just go grab a head, you know. Yeah, this is just one in the jar. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, like you need a some something that replicates a human head, and then just enough space to be able to create the sounds but yeah you wouldn't necessarily find them in a recording studio they're but they're, they're really fun they're a great thing to record with but a bit of a specialist item so other that. than the well yeah so here's a here's a nerdy question on that then mm -hmm. so you're doing specialist recordings using this binaural technique where you basically put two microphones on the side of a head and and then record sounds as they come from a single source. Do you think there's any way that technology might be able to replicate those kinds of effects without the separate separated microphones and without the head at some point? Oh yeah, I mean you can you can certainly replicate it through just panning, um, so moving particular sounds around us around a mix around a soundscape so you can you can you can replicate it um yeah but that's not exactly but, the same thing right i mean you're talking yeah. about like 
you know, hearing like the snips of a scissor behind your ears, right? And I mean, there's going to be like the sound of each of those hairs crackling in a different place is going to have a slightly different pitch bend to it on what you hear, right? Yeah. I mean, do you think it can ever get to that point where they can actually truly replicate like that level of detail? I don't know. I would never say never. <laughs> but to me, it just sounds like processing power. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not necessarily. That's what I'm kind of thinking. That it, impossible. It's just how much. Yeah. What yeah. Take to... Well, okay. So here's maybe a less less technical question: Is uh, how about like you know the standard audio quality that we use these days, like CD quality, right? Mm. Is that enough bandwidth? Is that enough sampling to be able to do something like that? Or, or you know, what's the what's the granularity of the sampling when when you're recording that kind of stuff with those you know with those specialty ear microphones? You mean like the ones that that we currently have? Not yeah. Yet. Is it analog recordings or are they digital recordings? They're digital recordings, and it's actually not. Yeah, the bandwidth isn't huge. Oh, that's interesting. It's, it's it's not it's not really that. It's more the sort of space of the human head and mm. that ability to just create this strange illusion that we experience all the time. We're we're hearing in binaural right now. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm you know. You cover up one ear, you lose half the space. You cover up the ear, you, other ear, you lose half of the other space. You know, so it's um, yeah, it's it's just about this space of the head rather than the actual sort of bandwidth of sampling. So in that case, it might be something as simple as like the the amount of time difference, or possibly the. Yeah, I guess it would be pretty much just that, right? The amount of time difference between the ears, you know, a sound wave. What is it? You know, so the recording spaces that you're dealing with, I, I don't know, sound waves don't bend, right? Or do the vibrations kind of, I don't know. You got to tell me how that works, right? Like if somebody's, you know, I snap my finger to the right side of my, you know, uh, to the right side of my head, if I have my right ear, closed you know it sounds or if i have my finger in in my right ear you know i i still hear it in my left ear mm. but how am i hearing it am i hearing it bouncing off of a wall or the you know or or is it like is the sound kind of filling the air around me and i just hear the echoes of that reverberation in my ear i mean like sound can travel through solid but obviously it's not mm -hmm. It's not the same. You won't get the same sort of clarity, and also, you will have gaps between your fingers, so you will get a, a sense of it coming through the air as well. Um, I mean, if you have the flat of your hand to your ear, and I click my, also it might be your other ear hearing it on the other side. I mean, you you get sound waves bouncing off the walls in a room. They do go through solids, but not as you know, not as the same with the same clarity as. Well, okay. <laughs> and they, sound waves do bend to answer your question, though, as well. They do. Okay, they yeah. Do. So, the, so those those echoes, those those impacts and compressions that are in the air, essentially, the sound waves are, are compressions and decompressions of air, right? Mm -hmm. That that fills the space. Okay, that makes sense. I'm I'm visualizing this <laughs> in a way that I would never be able to explain, but I think I get it. <laughs> 
So the reason why I was asking that is because, like, if sound waves don't bounce, then how would you hear them in your other ear, right? So let's say you're in a sound booth. Sound booths are designed to, to absorb sounds that hit the wall, right? And so if you plugged your right ear and snapped your finger to the right of your head, would you be able to hear it through your left ear in a sound booth? Obviously, the answer is yes, you do hear <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, of course. Time is really what it comes down to, then. Yeah. So panning, like you said, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But but you wouldn't. Yeah, you can't get the same kind of spatial effect with just panning alone. Um, right. Right, yeah. because there's like two different audio streams there. You're playing a different channel into the left and right ear on slightly different timings, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And the only way you can really experience. Well, if you had like a speaker set up, which was a circle of speakers around you, which mm-hmm. is really cool, which I've experienced before, yeah. you can experience it properly. But the other way is just through headphones. And oh, I do right. think it would be like a lot of integration with, you know, like this wireless um, VR headset that you were talking about, which I didn't even realize they had yet, which that's mm-hmm. just that's just crazy. I don't even understand how that would work. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's like the so much bandwidth, right? Yeah. Gives you a brain tumor and <laughs> broadcasts a ton of data at the same time. The best, the best VR that I ever tried out was I went to um, Hamburg last year, and there was this company. I was doing, I was doing some work there as a journalist, and I got to try out this like amazing VR headset that kind of took you into an interactive concert, which would be brilliant right now because there's no, mm-hmm. but it, cause I'd used, I'd used VR before, but it was only like my really crap, like iPhone, you know, that you put into right. like a, 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 a thing of gog, like a goggle, a goggle holder. I don't know what you call it. Like the thing that holds your phone that makes it into a pair of VR goggles. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure if this is going to be very good. Da, da, da. And tried it out, and it was, like, the most amazing thing I have ever seen. It was incredible. Like, you would go through these weird sort of trippy landscapes, and you'd see all of these, like, holographic people um, performing this music. And it was just like, this looks, like, so real, but so unreal, and I feel like I'm really in it. It was. I was so amazed by it. I'm going to have to find the name of it so I can send you my art the article i did on it because i was just like this is literally the best thing i've ever done in my life this is great yeah i've only used vr a couple times but it is it's a it's an interesting experience yeah what have you played bryant or you watched the movie i've just done demos like at trade (laughs) shows and stuff that have them and what headset was it oculus um i did one with an oculus i did one with an htc okay we have a demo set up at work um, of like a bomb diffusing scenario. <laughs> it's like a game that's set up in VR where you have to like diffuse the wires. It's like playing pickup sticks, basically, but like a yeah, <laughs> but like in yes. VR. Um, but I was not able to play it. Unfortunately, my 18-inch head is too large for it. <laughs> Dang. No, yeah, the one I VR. played was like a catapult game. You just oh, you no, stood yeah. on a platform and shot objects, you know, but just the idea that you could move around and be on that platform. It's a little, uh, I think I played the same game twice, go figure. Um, interesting, because like 
once you put that on, you kind of feel like you are on a platform standing above things, even though you know you're not, you know. Mm-hmm. But your your brain sees it that way. <laughs> right. Your brain's like, oh no. <laughs> right. Yeah, don't walk too far forward, you'll fall off. It's like I'm not gonna fall off on the floor. I'm standing on the floor, but your brain's like, oh no. Yeah, right. You're exactly. standing like, on no, a you're platform. Not. You're standing on this platform above everything. And then we have a VR gaming place. That's right. I went to that too. I'm trying to think what I played there. That was like a first person shooter. That was a little didn't work very well. Can't remember the game. Yeah, laser tag's still better for that. Yeah. Yeah. It it just you know the the because you can't walk around, you're still kind of using the remotes as controllers to move right. you around mm-hmm. and then just kind of turning yourself a little bit. Just doesn't work quite the way that you'd expect VR to kind of work. I honestly think the best VR game out is the new Half Life. It's it's yeah. such a yeah, it's so good. So how I think that could have been the one played played. No, I want to, but like I've seen um, been gameplay, and it's insane because I play VR games, and they, they, there's something about them that's like you know you're like eh, it's not really I'm not really feeling it. But I saw gameplay of that, and I was like, wow. And usually VR games they don't amaze you when you see them. Like on the regular screen, because you're like, oh, whatever. Once you're in the VR, you understand. You're like, oh, this is cool. Right. But that game, no, I'm just watching it on the regular screen. I was like, could you imagine that in VR? I think like, I need to play it. But I don't have a VR for my computer. I just have the PSVR, so I can't play it. So the problem with VR has always been the same thing. It's making making VR seem intuitive. A person, you know, it was <laughs> kind of a funny thing. It was, you know, basically Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs' main argument with each other about, <clears throat> like, touchscreens or no it wasn't um, jobs and wozniak it was who was it that was running who was the ceo apple uh, apple of apple ceo after they fired jobs well, ceo the guy the, the guy that they then later fired when, when after jobs uh, founded next and then uh, apple started falling apart and they had to rehire him it was the argument that they had about the stylus versus the pen it was the you know you remember everybody remembers the freaking what was it called the newton right simpsons made fun of it um and that was Jobs' argument was, look, it's you. why do you need a stylus? You have five of them on every hand or on both of your hands, right? Yeah. When you're trying to do – it's it's there's a whole entire science around what we call user experience or UX, right? It's – it's it's integrating things like the principle of least surprise. If I, you know, the 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 actions that you are performing need to seem intuitive to your brain so that you can interact with it without having to think about what it is that you're doing. How do I have to twist my wrist to make this weird controller thing go the right direction to pick up that thing and draw? You know, you can't have. A, a disconnect between what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish, and and trying to figure out how to manipulate the controls to do that. <clears throat> it has to seem intuitive, right. and that's what appears to be the case. Is that you know, as as you would expect of Valve, people who are like you know into understanding psychology <laughs> and, and making things intuitive, it was the, it was all of the success of Half Life was that exact same thing. It was all about the experience. So of course. You're going to say, you know, you're going to have a room full of people, <laughs> a building full of people whose only job is to sit around and figure out how to make VR fun. Of course they are going to be. <laughs> of course they are going to nail it, right? Dang, they had so many CEOs, and they were all horrible. You're, you're thinking John Scully, I think. But... Yeah, Scully was who I was thinking of, yeah. Yeah. But Scully all the responsible tomorrow. for the Newton. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's the 14th worst American CEO of all time. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> 
I don't know about that. That's what it says on the... Uh... <laughs> Apparently there's rankings of the worst CEOs somewhere. <laughs> when, I, when I see CVR, it's just, it's overly complex. Yeah. On the controls. It's like, yeah. that's just not... Not only that, like, the um the tracking has to be perfect. Yeah. There's been so many times when it's like, you're out of your, like space and i just lose it i just lose immersion or it gets hard it gets so frustrating at well that's point, why i like all to gonna have to have boot suits like in ready player one yes i agree that's the only way that you're gonna be able to make vr work the way that you would expect it to work you gotta like it's got to be able to articulate every mo- so this was one of the things that the uh that the connects was trying to do actually um, the Kinect was actually not too bad at it, um, as far as a platform goes for technology. But imagine if you had a Kinect these days. I mean, this was the early days of, of facial recognition type technology and all of that kind of stuff. So the Kinect was able to at least see your body movements for the various dancing games to make sure that you were actually, you know, moving the way that you want to. Take that, you know, what? How long ago was the Kinect? That was the original Xbox when it first came out, wasn't it? That was like twenty years ago. But that long ago, I think it was, I, I don't think it was that long ago. I think it was maybe like 10 to 15 and, years ago. Yeah, it was definitely not as early as the noughties. So, yeah, maybe, no, I mean, when was the original Xbox out? That was like 2006, wasn't I don't it? Think, I think it was the Xbox 360, wasn't it? Oh, it was the 360, yeah. Maybe, I don't know. I'm yeah, I... yeah, yeah, you're right. It was the second one, that's right. It was the 360 that had that, that's right. Uh, let's see. They sold 37 million units. It released first generation was 2010. It looks 2010. Okay, yeah. So 10 so, years ago then. Yeah. So I mean, we've come 10 years further. You know, people are still you know now especially talking about like the dangers of facial recognition, especially among you know police forces and and governments. And now we've got you know. We're, we're 10 years further down the line. What I'm basically trying to get at here is that, like, give it another 10 years and we'll have a Kinex that can actually articulate every finger movement that you make, right? Right. At, at which point VR will be able to be completely perfect because you will be able to completely intuitively interact with your space by just reaching the hand of your actual body out in front of you towards this virtual object and grasping, right? <laughs> and the game right. will just interpret that. Yeah, that's the problem now is that, that they try to cram too much into that remote. And it's like, it, it just needs to be very simple. Trying to even cram like a Half-Life into a VR game probably is not going to give you the same experience that you would expect. Yeah. You know, it might be a good game, but it's still not going to feel right. Yeah, I feel Where, like you can do like Myst-style games with VR, right? <laughs> right, exactly. You just need to find the right genre of games right. that are VR appropriate. Building Escape. So we yeah. need to do a VR building escape, obviously. <laughs> no, yeah, that would be perfect. Mm. Yeah, VR building escape. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of games that you could do, I think, VR. It's just the right genre that just doesn't... It's kind of like the difference of you know playing a game on a PC versus playing it on an Xbox controller and having the 27 buttons on the controller, right? And right. the difference in preference of keyboards versus that and so forth. I'm not a big Xbox controller person. Yeah, but yes. I- I read too some big for me. reviews of Microsoft Flight Simulator, and they said the first thing that you need to do is not ever try playing that game with a mouse and keyboard. <laughs> so I immediately went and found my 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 Xbox controller and my USB fob so that I can try playing Flight Simulator with a controller on my PC. What do you think, Zoe? Controller or mouse? I'm more of a controller person myself. 
Yeah. Yeah, but old guys, of course. <laughs> Pretty much, right? <laughs> we grew up playing. Oh man. Yeah, I think I don't know. I I don't know if it if it's because I'm just used to playing with them more, or if it's actually like a like a preference because I feel like they're easier to use. I'm not really sure to be honest. Never really thought about it. I don't mind using keyboard and mouse, but it does take a little bit more time for me to get into a new game if that's the way I'm playing it. Yeah. And I think that's really what it comes down to is just what you're more used to or familiar with. Cause there are things that I've seen, you know, I I'm playing GTA online with a controller and there's people that definitely have way better controller skills than I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I'm watching other people drive down the road and swerve through things that I'm just like, yeah, I might be able to pull that off, but that guy has got way better accuracy than I do. <laughs> Practice. <clears throat> yeah. One of the I'm most still... infuriating uh, things in the world is trying to drive like a normal person in the GTA games. You're like, let me just see if I can do it. And as soon no. as you, you do, you, well, the answer is just no. No. <laughs> no. Because the NPC cars do not drive like normal people. They do not follow yeah. normal people behavior rules of the road. They they Their AI... I, I streamed GTA yesterday for like two hours, and about two hours of it was me ranting about the GTA car AI. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, yeah. install. <laughs> their AI for their vehicles is very, very interesting. The, the story mode AI is actually easier than the online AI. The online AI is more aggressive and has additional behaviors and things that it will do that even the story mode AI won't do. Like, for example, the story mode AI will almost never move into a left lane for a turn and then take a right turn, but the online AI will do that. It'll turn into a left turn lane and then take a 90-degree right turn and accelerate in front of you to make you hit it. Like, stuff like that happens in the online version. <laughs> what I was what I was going to say was that it, it appears that the aggression of the AI... Um, cars in gta online is directly related to your velocity more or less and so there's some tricks that you can use to avoid causing accidents at intersections for example you can gun it and if you get you get like about 100 yards from the intersection if you just let off the controller accelerator button just a little bit it's enough to tweak the ai so that they won't like rush in front of you and stuff like that It's really fascinating how much control you actually have over the AI in that game. And I've been trying to figure out exactly how they do it, because you know about the spawning rule that they have. Nothing can spawn on camera, right? So if you want to make your vehicle show up like right next to you, just turn your camera so that it's not looking at the road when you request a vehicle, and then it'll spawn right next to you, because as long as it's not on camera, it's a valid spawn location. This is true while you're driving down the road as well. Cars will come in from the sides of intersections, but they will only come in from off camera. And so the part that's been that I've been trying to figure out is that in the online world, if you're flying around, you see that there's traffic flowing through all of the streets constantly. So when you are driving, I feel like that they kind of make this bubble around you where they adjust the timing of those cars to match your specific position and velocity through the streets. Because 
there are extremely like especially if you continue to do the same missions over and over again you'll have like the same destination so you'll run the same route like 50 times in a row and you will see even though the cars will be different the car positions will always be the same based on how you drive there are certain places where there will always be a car will come in from the right up there and they'll do it exactly as you're coming up to this particular spot it, it there has to be some kind of system that adjusts these the positions of these cars because like i said if you're flying around and just looking at the ground you see all of these vehicles out there so they must do something to like you know there must be like cycles or something for all of the cars and there's always just kind of a steady drip of cars coming and as you come to it they like move it forward you know in the you know in the area that you are to get it to where it needs to be so that they can give you a driving challenge and that's really all it comes down to is that these are koopas this was the this was the parallel that i made they're mario brothers koopas right they're they're designed to give you something to do to jump past or avoid while you're driving and and the algorithms that that they use to like time all of the vehicles as you're driving around are very very predictable and extremely fun to learn their behaviors i mean i i actually on my stream yesterday i actually went up and down this one street like five times to show the behavior of this one vehicle showing up at the exact same time five times in a row so it's not random it's it's very very much based on what you are doing and where you are in the road <clears throat> fascinating i mean like i can't even i would love to meet the guy who wrote the vehicle ai or at least you know whoever was in charge of designing that for gta because it's just it's amazing he's our special guest tonight imagine yeah. if we just <laughs> we just have like, to hold have on him. here he is <laughs> here he is <laughs> no i mean that's just there's some brilliance right there i have to admit very very fascinating yeah it seems so have you played have you played at kbl now I haven't, I haven't played it. Yeah. Oh, I play all the time, yeah. Oh, okay. I have not played it yet. Oh, what are you doing? It's your, well, your I know. I know. I know. So I just bought this like two months ago or three months ago because KB said, like, how did you not play this game? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm like, all right, <laughs> fine. <laughs> Pizza as a service. We're all enjoying our, 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 our software as a service platform. Epic, uh, epic, uh, Epic installer allowing us to download um, Grand Theft Auto so that we can play together on that software as a service GTA online. All of that stuff is cloud services, man. It's all the cloud. <laughs> cloud, man. It's all the cloud, everywhere. man. It's awesome. what's allowing us to record this uh, podcast. That's right. Yeah. We're using Skype, which means that we're actually using <laughs> Microsoft's Azure cloud services for this mm -hmm. call. <laughs> yeah. So it's saying you use it for everything, you just don't yeah. think about it. I mean, just don't think about it. Or as innocuous as it may be, like, you know, YouTube or, you know, all yeah. YouTube or Yahoo that I'm staring at. Right. You or just core networking infrastructure like DNS. Yeah. Look at all these cloud services that none of us even knew about. I mean, there's even cloud services like Usenet and IRC. Right. <laughs> so many. So, for those of you who are under the age of 40, <laughs> Usenet is what we commonly call message boards these days. <laughs> Usenet was essentially one of the very first, like, community comment posting type networks on the internet in the early, earliest days. I think it mostly worked through email, didn't it, Bryant? 
You mailed the Usenet list, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. And then it would distribute that email to everyone, which was why if you didn't read the FAQs and you asked a question that was in that FAQ, in those days you would literally be flooded off of the internet by everybody responding to you, read the damn FAQ, and then your mailbox would be loaded with about $200 worth of downloads if you wanted to get past it. Because <laughs> the internet was that expensive back then. <laughs> yeah. Or just time, right? Yeah. And then there was, you know, Discord from from the 1970s that, that was called IRC. <laughs> yeah, I never used IRC much. No? No. It's pretty big into IRC. Funny thing is, I look, do the wiki page on uh, Usenet, and it's still heavily yeah. used. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nothing ever Six. goes away on the internet, no. man. Sixty-two terabytes of daily volume. But I mean, it is true. It's it's the exact same kind of thing. Like, I mean, Microsoft being one of the big cloud providers, right? By the time all of the antitrust stuff went around about Windows ninety-five, Windows ninety-five was not even an operating system that people used. By the time all of that stuff was resolved ten years later, everybody was using like Windows XP by then. Which was yeah, like a completely exactly. different kernel, a completely different operating system, and Microsoft, of course, complied with the you know with the main thrust of what the government was doing: don't bundle Internet Explorer, provide an option that doesn't come with all of these you know all of these things prepackaged. That's why there are so many, and this is something that a lot of people don't know, but there are so many different editions of Windows. It's ridiculous. There's not just Home and Pro. There's home and pro and enterprise and education, and all of those have N and S and NS variations and other yeah. kinds of things for different regions around the around the around the planet. So for example, if you go to Europe and you buy Windows there, you're gonna get the N version of it, which does not come with a browser <laughs> and a couple other applications. It's just because that's the regulation in Europe is that you can't pre-bundle these things. So like yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting how all of that stuff works. But again, you know, the point here is that by the time the government got around to solving a problem with, you know, that they viewed as problematic, the monopoly of Windows 95 on all PCs, you know, was such that they were consuming any potential, or at least it was seen that they were consuming any potential competition, which is not necessarily true. There was definitely the... Embrace, extinguish, extend, or let's see, embrace, extend, extinguish, right, type thing that Microsoft did where they took any kind of emerging technology concept and enhanced it in their own way, made it kind of, um, what's the word that they used, uh, not standard, but proprietary, right? And that, you know, then they were able to to use their position in, in, of dominance to capture any of these emerging technologies but i think that that was a fundamental misunderstanding of how technology works as well is that microsoft wasn't necessarily trampling on innovation they were capturing innovation and then investing in it adding to it and making it something more 
you know, these days now that Microsoft has shifted away from being proprietary about that kind of stuff, this is actually something that I would say Microsoft learned from the Linux community and the open source community was that you can embrace and extend those things and still maintain the relationship with the community and the standards, you know, being open. Because the truth of the matter is the technology itself, the code that we write, is far less important than what it does in the larger sense. Right. You know, it's like the difference between, you know, the the four different chemicals that make up your DNA versus what a chromosome will do. Right. Your your Azure service that allows you to have a digital service bus in the cloud to transfer from, you know, transfer your bank files into your business. That's of value. The direct code that is written to make that happen is almost irrelevant because there's a billion different ways that you could do that. So what's important? Is it the code or is it the service that you're providing? It's the service that you're providing. That's where the value is. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding when it comes to legislating technology is that it's not about competition. Everybody is using the same standards. When one developer figures out a great new way to do something, everybody starts doing it that way because it's the great new way that everybody can share in that achievement. And from there, I shall step down from my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I'm so sorry. I'm going to have to go. (laughs) I need to vacate this room. (laughs) You're good. I think we're all going to head out, too. Um, Don't don't try and make wow. Remember that. (laughs) Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. You can find all courses at GameDev.tv or in the show notes at a discounted price. Get started with your game development journey today.